Welcome back to another episode of Louisiana Ladies. My name is Melissa Torito. And I am Maggie Robinson. And this is a podcast with with no no agenda. We would love if you guys would subscribe to the podcast and that way you never miss a new episode. Additionally, when you subscribe, if you could rate and review, we would really appreciate that as well. We are also on social media, both Instagram and Facebook, so please give us a follow at Louisiana Ladies Podcast. And Maggie? You can reach us at our email address, louisianaladiespodcast at gmail.com. back with another episode of Louisiana Ladies and this is our first episode where we have a guest for our month of August which is nonprofit month Renee because <laughs> you're the first one uh, so we have Renee Chatelain from Arts Council is it Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge or yes it is. okay look at me let's see I just won that guys anyway um go ahead and tell everybody this our our poor microphone has bit the dust. <laughs> so if anybody happens to have a microphone or maybe wants to sponsor us with a microphone, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so the audio might be a little uh, little off. So thank you for being here today, Renee. Sure, my pleasure. We're excited to talk to her. So we're going to open up with a few, um, actually, I don't even know what I had planned for opening segment. Maggie, what you got? What you do this weekend? Oh, I did a lot of yard work this weekend. Um, pressure washing is like the most satisfying task, I believe. Like I got to pressure wash my patio. And man, we haven't had it for very long, but it was dirty. And like just every stroke, it's like you can just see the, the results. I'm like, oh, I could do this all day. Yeah, Patrick has done it before, and he's so OCD, it took him like six hours to do a very small spot. I mean, it had to be like perfect. Cool. Yeah. That's not my jam. I'd rather just pay somebody to do (laughs) it. Oh, I love it. Um, Okay, a quick book club update. I know I say this every week, but man, I am like, I'm reading like nonstop. So I finished the prequel to Pillars of the Earth. So good. So good. Have you read the prequel? It's the, um, the Evenings of the Morning. Yes. Did you read it? Of course. I'm obsessed with Ken Follett. Yes. And it's fantastic. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I finished that and I also started and finished We Begin at the End. Okay. I'm very proud of myself. This is my proud of myself moment is picking that book for the book club. We have a Louisiana Ladies Book Club today. Interesting. Um, we can, um, you can join the book club's app. I'll send you an invite. Oh, that would be fantastic. I'm a huge reader. Okay. So we are too over. Well, has the book club read the Midnight Library? No, but that is on my, that's going to be on our list. I went to Red Stick Reads the other day and he said, did somebody ask about this book? And I was like, it doesn't sound familiar. So the Midnight, Midnight Library. Library. Okay. It's, it's a fascinating concept. It's well written. It's, I mean, I loved it. Okay. So um, we're going to add that to our list. Anyway, so we begin at the end. Y'all, I, I, I finished it last night at 10 p.m. and I immediately jumped on Marco Polo with my girlfriends and I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this book. I read it so quickly, but oh, I, I don't know if deep is the right way to put it. It's just you finish it and you're just like, I don't know. It's kind of, you're kind of sad. 
but then you're kind of hopeful. I'm going to be honest, it's hard. It's a little heartbreaking. You can check it out for now. I, I definitely will. I I'm reading, right now I'm reading The Henna Artist, and that's a really compelling book. Um, so, okay, so are you like a Kindle reader? You are. Okay, so I like a book. I, you know, I like a book. Um, it just seems to be easier to grab and go with my Kindle, but I really like to flip back and forth. Yes, me too. Um, and so, yeah, my preference is a paper book, but I just grab what I can. So. Yeah, so when we went to Red Stick Reads, I bought like six books from them, you know, and so granted, the hardcovers are more expensive, but I feel like I'll just, I feel like one of my purposes in life is to buy books and then let other people read them, like my library. No, I, I, a library. I completely agree, and I like to share mine and, and, you know, exchange books too, so I guess I'm a combination. Okay. And it's okay, Renee. It's okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for telling me So that. I will actually be starting the August book, and I bet you I'll finish it by the next time we record the podcast. So the August book is Finley Donovan. It's so good. You've read it? I'm in the middle <gasps> of it. What? Maggie's <laughs> reading the book? It's so good. It's good? Okay, that's good to know. That makes it I'm really actually fun. listening to it. Okay. What book did you end up buying at Red Stick Reads? Did you buy Midnight Library? No. Something Rising. It's like a blue book with yellow right Malibu Rising. Oh, yeah. That one's really cute. You don't like it? I haven't started it yet. Oh, okay. Wait. Hold on. Why is this book not coming up? Did you guys in your other book read Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine? Not yet, but I've read that one. We haven't put that in the book club. That's, I was thinking about it because it's Scottish, and I listened to that one, and I highly recommend listening to it. It's it's fabulous it's in any way. It's funny, too, right? It's, it's She's a funny lady. lady. It's funny. I miss that character like I've not missed any other character from a book. Yeah. It's, you know, once it's I completed one. the book, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, what about Eleanor? Um, but it is, it's really fantastic. So Finley Donovan is killing it. Okay, so you like it, and I'm starting that tonight. Yeah. This is how nerdy my life is. I mean, I just get so excited when I finish a book and I get to pick up another one. And y'all should see this. I should take a picture of all the books that I have at my house and post it. But isn't it the worst when you finish a book and you can't find anyone else who's read it? Because I'm like you. Like, I need someone. Like, sometimes I'll text my sister and be like, you've got to finish this book so we can talk about it, you know? Like, I have no one else. I have no one to talk about it with. I need to. need to. I know. I felt Talk like about that, my feelings. <laughs> I felt like that for all of Louisiana Ladies books because neither one of y'all have read them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm changing that. These two. They don't read. All right. So that was, I, I could talk about books all day, every day. So, word of the episode. Word of the episode. Word up. Maggie, you're our word of the episode gal. Hmm. I never know if I'm going to say it right. Lambasted? To criticize something harshly? Ouch. Also a word that I think explains me and what I do. Are you doing this whole purpose, Lainey, when you pick these words? No, I heard this word this weekend and I was convinced it was not real, especially in the context it was used in. Like it was kind of random. Oh, then you went and looked it up. And, and I was like, that's not a word. I never had it? you heard it before. No. Yes. Someone used it. And I was thinking, I've never heard this word before. So did I say it crazy. Right? Yeah, you said it right. Ambassador. And then I Googled it and it was real. Okay. I've probably done that before. Actually, a lot in the past year, if that had to be truthful. So we're going to move on to more positive to more positive words. Um, Maggie, you have a palm. You're proud of yourself moment. 
Oh. <laughs> we coined that phrase, Paul. So amidst all the yard work, I, I pretty much was like, I'm going to pressure wash my house. So maybe Wasp will decide that they don't want to live here anymore. Because so I got stung by a wasp when I was younger. And I remember being so, it hurt so bad. I was going to get on my tire swing in my backyard and it, it built a nest in there. It stung me on my leg and it hurt so bad. And I got swollen they had to draw a sharpie around the swollen area and if it grew outside of that line I was gonna have to go to the emergency room and it was like a big ordeal I have an EpiPen it's expired but I have not been stung since then and my husband is like why are you so afraid of wasps and I was like because I don't know like if that's gonna hurt it's gonna hurt it's a gonna get infected like it did last time well, because who wants to be around something you know could hurt you Exactly. And he's like, but it's kind of irrational because you don't know. I'm like, exactly. Like, I don't know. So I don't want to find out. And like, he's my designated wasp killer. But I picked up the, the can and I was killing wasps. And I was facing my fears. I'm like, I will not be scared anymore. <laughs> yeah, you tell You know what I am scared of? I like terrified of. Roaches. Oh, yeah. That's their gross little things. And I'm like, okay. They will not hurt you. They're just incredibly creepy. And are creatures. they going to fly? You never know. And like those things are resilient. Yeah. Uh, tell Aaron his logic doesn't make sense. I'm scared of wasps too. Like it's like being like, hey, walk across some needles. Aaron is a weirdo though. He like gets in an ant pile and just lets the ants bite him. Like if I get an ant pile, I'm going to be like, ah, I try to freak out. Is he just trying to be tough? He is very tough. He is, he is tough. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not, so protect me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, he should do that, though. Yes. And he does. He does. But he's like, I'm surprised that he's like, I'm not sure that the wasp would hurt you. I think you would have, like, a pan like you're going to have a panic attack because of the wasp. Not actually. It's probably a legitimate fear. I think there's a fear for everything, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fear of roaches, that's probably... A word. There's probably a word for that. We also have a lot of geckos, those clear geckos. That's why. I'm not scared of those. They just it's not that I'm scared of them. I just don't like them at all. They're gross. Because I feel like they rate, they rise to the level of animal. Like, you know, you can squish a bug. Exactly. But you can't squish a gecko. I mean, you I guess could. you can, but I will never do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called catsaridophia. I'm butchering that. But it is... A cockroach phobia. When I Googled it, it said obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh. But it's because the catsaridophobia often leads to being OCD, apparently. Because you're trying to make sure that cockroaches are not in your life. Okay, I'm not even going to read this next, this next thing that said, why am I scared of roaches? We're going to move on to talk to Renee. All right, so we have Renee, and we're really excited. Uh, Renee and I are basically family. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, just in case anybody's wondering why, um, Renee, you explain it. I think you did it well. Your sister yep. is married to my nephew by marriage. Yes. So, so. we see each other at family events. and. Um, it's super fun. It's a great way to be connected. Yeah. And Renee, so when I did dancing for Big Buddy, I did that in 2018. Prior to that, though, were you one of the dance peeps? 
I was in the original Dancing for Big Buddy. Okay. And that is how I met my husband, Kevin, Garrett's uncle, because he was a celebrity and I was the dancer. Right. So, oh. Renee, you, wait, I don't want to mess this up. You used to be about like a professional ballet dancer? Uh, yes. That was my first career. As I had trained here in Baton Rouge and then I had, you know, there's not a professional company here. Um, so in the summers and during any of the breaks as a teenager, I was training with Washington Ballet in D.C. And um, fully at the time, ballet dancers, you had to get hired when you were 18. It was, a, you know, you didn't move on to college and then pursue a career. You had to go right away. You were considered an old person at 20 if you didn't have a professional contract. Hmm. And so um, that's what I was pursuing. And um, it turns out that the height of the company, they usually hire a whole company like you hire a baseball team. Um, it really depends on the principal dancer's height because you have to match it aesthetically. Who's the principal dancer? The principal. So there's a high hierarchy in ballet where you have a core to ballet, which is like means the body, um, but it's, the, it's sort of the ensemble. Then there are soloists and demi-soloists, right? So they have more significant roles. Then the very top echelon of that hierarchy is the principal. And so when people use the word ballerina, um, they use it really loosely, like everybody who's in ballet is a ballerina. But in in the real you know, sense of it, ballerinas are the highest of the principles. Like you rise to yet another aesthetic. So very few people are ballerinas in the world. Oh, yeah, is this that- is what I wanted to talk to you about because I did ballet my whole life. I mean, I never attempted to pursue it professionally, but I mean, I did ballet from when I was three until I graduated high school. And oh, I still yeah. take class for fun sometimes. Good for you. Yeah. Are you from here? No, I'm from Shreveport. Okay. Hey, wait, are you from here, Renee? Yes, I am. And so where did you start? So, you know, it's interesting. Like, I was the squirmy kid that danced in front of the TV back in the day. And so my parents put me in a Breck dance class, and it was Howell Park Breck. We lived in North Baton Rouge. And um, that teacher said, I think Renee might really be suited for ballet, not just tap dance ballet, you know, all the things. And so my mom just found a teacher that was close to her house on the way to a, I have three brothers on the way to a baseball carpool. And it turns out she had danced with American Ballet Theater and had her side gig because back in the day, like think about Gene Kelly and all those guys, they would have a ballet season. And in the off season, they'd go make Hollywood movies. Hmm. And so, or in the case of my teacher, she was with the circus. She was with Ringling Brothers. So she'd do a ballet season and then go um, stand on the horses and do that kind of thing. That was her, that's her deal. Um, But anyway, she found herself settled in Baton Rouge and by luck of the draw completely, I end up with this master teacher because, you know, it's very hard to find really good classical ballet training. And um, so anyway, I trained with her and one thing led to another. And so then I, I really wanted to pursue that. And so in the summers and Thanksgiving and Christmas, I would go to Washington Ballet. Well, it turns out that the principal, when I got to, when I was 18, um, was tall enough to require that no one under five foot four was going to be considered for the core. How rare. Right? Because I'm 5'2", so I totally relate to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm 5'2", as well. And so, um, so anyway, you end up having to sort of migrate to a company that has your sort of height and body similarities so that you can, you can maybe all be in the same company. And so, um, you know, you can always 
improve your technique. You can always try to be thinner or whatever, but you can't be taller. I mean, that's, that's a game changer. So uh, I ended up dancing for a company at a, it's called Iglevsky Ballet. It doesn't exist anymore in New York. And in my off season, I was with the American Dance Machine, which was a Broadway repertory company. And that they were just, their goal was to keep the styles like Fosse and, and some of the ones you may know, um, Jerry Robbins, like to keep their styles. Cause you can write down the steps, but you can't write the style that has to be transferred from a, a, a master or an experienced person to an apprentice. And so that's what they did. So we learned all the Broadway repertoire and, um, and then in the others, on the other times of the year, then I danced with the ballet company doing what they were doing. So, so that's what I did first. That was my first. Okay. So it sounds intense. It is intense. Uh, do you make money? No, I mean, you don't do it for the money at all. And do you make any money? Do they pay you at least? I mean, if you're a principal, you know, it's like being a celebrity. If you, I mean, look at Misty Copeland. If you know Misty Copeland, that's a great example. She's uh, a ballet dancer and she was promoted to principal in one of the first. She's not the first, although that was some of the language coming out in the beginning. Um, uh, persons of color, namely African-American, to be a principal in American Ballet Theater. And there's this whole conversation about um, ballet being white, European centric. And um, so there's this whole evolution of ballet. So Misty is the, the spokesperson for that. She's not the first at all. Um, but she's got contracts with Nike. She's got contracts with um, God, Under Armour and stuff. Under I mean, Armour. Yeah. She's written a book, you know? Yeah, she makes um, appearances all over the world, really. And so she has an agent. She's a, she's quite the celebrity. And the contract with American Valley Theater is really good. So how long does someone uh, work, as a, or work as a principal? I really think it's like an athlete. Like you think about injuries and your body, you know, like what can your body tolerate? I mean, but there know, are some Drew Brees out there who are who they've been principal outlast so the norm. She was born in 1982, which means she's about my age. Missy, Missy Copeland. Yeah, yeah. I Googled her. She's stunning. Yeah. And she'll soon, I mean, she's probably asking herself those questions now too, because the ideal age but Tom Brady, Drew Brees, you see lots of athletes now and dancers too are defying those odds where it used to be by the time you're mid thirties, you need to be looking at a different career. But now, I mean, people, people understand kinesiology so much better than how to condition their bodies better. I mean, we had the old Russian teachers who would just say, just do it. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, okay, you know, and then you probably really permanently damage your body with all the intense training with no reason except they told you to do it um and so people are so much smarter they take care of themselves better nutrition is better um so you're seeing that shift you know and it's better because then you when you get to be I guess into your 30s as an artist you understand the role so much better you you're you can psychologically interpret what's happening not just the steps you know and so it's it's really interesting where it's going so Okay, so you did that till about, how old were you? So I just did it for a few years because I remember being on, I I just danced professionally until I was 22. Because, um, well, I say that, professionally outside of Louisiana until I was 22. Um, Because I remember being on a tour bus and we were going somewhere in the Northeast. And when you're on tour, and I'm sure musicians or other people who tour can attest to this, 
you have your schedule, but you're so in a bubble because you you drive to the next city, you go to rehearsal, you do a dress, you do performances. By the time you get out, it's really late. You have your late night, you sleep. The next day you have class or you get on a bus and you go to the next city. So you kind of don't realize where, where you are in the world. And I remember thinking, God, who's the president of the United States? What is happening in the world? I'm on this bus talking about tendonitis or point shoes or whatever. And I need a little bit more for me than that. You know, um, do I still love ballet? Yes. And if I didn't have injuries and age wasn't a factor, I would be in class every single day because that's really what I love the best, you know? Um, but anyway, at that point I said, well, I don't know, you know, I need more. This is just not quite enough. And so I came back to Baton Rouge and went to LSU. Okay. And at that point, I think also when you enter a little bit older than 18, you're ready, you're serious and you're ready to get in and out. And so I took like 21 hours a semester, just really pushed it and got out pretty quickly. And, um, and then I decided to go to law school. And so I went to law school and, um, the whole time I was doing my undergrad and really up until my freshman year of law school, I was dancing for the Delta Festival Ballet in New Orleans, which was the only professional company that, you know, I could kind of be with and also be in school. And so I teach ballet. I would I would um, that, that that was my job to sort of support myself, went to school and then I would go to New Orleans and that pays a whole lot less. You know, it was just really kind of an honorarium for performing, but it was still for me challenging enough dance wise to be able to, to keep it up. And um, so anyway, I was in dance throughout this. And then when I was in law school, it may have been my undergrad, maybe senior year of undergrad, I got a call from a community center here in Baton Rouge that said, we have a population of little girls who want classical ballet. Um, they're all African-American, they have no outlet for ballet. If they wanted to do some other form of dance that's available, but we want to offer that. We don't have any money. We heard that you had this background. Would you come and just volunteer? And no one had asked me to volunteer before, honestly. You know, I've done all this. And I said, okay, well, let me see what this is like. You know, I'll go on a Saturday and see. Completely fell in love and, um, and realized that, you know, if my mom had not just put me accidentally in the city program, I would not have had the trajectory that I had. So these kids get introduced to ballet, something they would never normally get introduced to. And it, it gets them to another place in the world or makes them feel like they know that the world is bigger than their neighborhood, then that's what I want to do. And so I started a nonprofit called Mid City Dance Project. And for the next 20 years, just taught ballet and created performance opportunities for underserved kids. And then, you know, somebody had a brother in a wheelchair and we said, okay, how do we do that? And we found out there's a professional track for, it's called Dancing Wheels in Cleveland. And there are a couple of companies that have um, dance companies specifically for wheelchair um, dancers. And, uh, and so we thought that was pretty fabulous to be not limiting like, you know, if you want to dream about being a ballet dancer and you're in a chair, you should be able to do it. And then that expanded to somebody's, you know, sibling was deaf or this or that. And then where you knew it, we had a big sort of collage of people with all different abilities, all different colors, all different ages. And we did the inner city nutcracker every year. So that's 
among other things. And um, I guess kind of culminated in we audition. I wanted to, them to learn, and I know that you have ballet background, and so it's fun to talk in this way. We wanted, I wanted the kids to know what an audition was like. You have to show up on time. You have to be, you know, be dressed well. You have to do all these things. And so on a fluke, we heard about an audition, and I went not to get in. I only went so they could have the exercise of the audition. We auditioned, and we actually got in, and it was, they chose five companies in the United States that were amateur to join this professional tour in Austria. And it was a, it was seven performances, five cities, like legitimate tour, um, where we did all these outdoor performances in the summer. It's called Tanzania. And so all of a sudden, I found myself trying to find parents to get passports, raising the funds, and 22 dancers and some parents came for the first time, got on a plane, went to another country, saw mountains. It was magical. Oh, my gosh. And so that was was and remains, you know, the best experience I've ever had professionally and I'm still in touch with most of the kids, even from the little first community class. And it's just, it's phenomenal. It's really phenomenal. As per usual, our guests are incredibly humble. As Renee's like, I just started a nonprofit. No big deal. For 20 years. And had this experience. Okay, so, hold on. Let me make sure I got this straight. So, you saw the need for this nonprofit organization. I'm sure you did some research on to how to even start a nonprofit and you did that for 20 years and this experience was included in it. Wow. What a, like, I just kind of think about the kids that were involved in that. I mean, what a great experience for them. That's so cool. Okay. So you did that 20 years. Is that nonprofit still in existence? It is. Okay. It is. Um, it, it has a different life and I'm glad you and say the name one more time. It's mid city dance project. Okay. So, um, it, it has sort of a different focus at this point, but I've, I love that you brought it back to the nonprofit because I know it's nonprofit month. Yeah. And in my job now as head of the arts council, I think it's so, so important um, to talk about nonprofits and what their purpose is. And then also what the responsibilities are, because every artist, I think particularly, particularly in the United States, the way our giving is set up, the way, you know, the way finances are for the arts world Everyone thinks that when they have an arts business, they must start a nonprofit because that's the, that's just what you do. They don't understand the ramifications or, or the I wouldn't say ramifications, but really the responsibilities. You know, you you have a board of directors that actually runs, mm -hmm. you know, um, this. There are bylaws. There are filings every year. You guys know from, mm -hmm. from the tax end mm -hmm. um, and even in the original application. So almost daily, I will get someone excited about a project or arts and they come in, they say, well, we are going to become a nonprofit and we filed an LLC. And I'm like, well, first mistake is IRS doesn't recognize LLCs for purposes of nonprofit status. So now I know you spent this money and this time. Now you have to start over. And there was nobody to tell that person that. Correct. It's not like it's easy to figure this out. Correct. I mean, it's it's just so important. So every year we have an art summit, which is like an arts conference. And the really the seeds of that were this conversation. It's a, I just wanted people to understand you may or may not want to become a nonprofit. It doesn't mean you don't have a service that you're providing to the public that is um, 
good or has is mission oriented because businesses have mission statements or objectives. Um, so, you know, you just have to figure out for yourselves what's the best um, what's the best financial structure that you want for the entity that you're seeking to create. I think a lot of I think it's very easy, especially since nonprofits, you know, most of them have a mission, you know, and it's a very specific mission. And normally it's to help a group of kids or adults or just a certain part of the population. Right. And so people that start nonprofits or want to start nonprofits, they're inherently very passionate about that. But one of the things that I've always on, on every board that I've been on is you're running a bit. If you're the executive director of a nonprofit. Yeah, it might be a nonprofit, but in my brain, you still have, you're basically an entrepreneur. Absolutely. You're an entrepreneur. You're doing something that's not for profit, you know, by by IRS standards, but you absolutely have to know what's going on from a business sense. Or again, just like a business owner that sells mini blinds, because I'm looking at blinds, you know, they are going to know how to measure the blinds and what's going to look great. But they also need to enlist the help of CPAs, attorneys, all of these specialists, you know, and I think that um, I've been on some boards where the, the organization has started up and I can tell the executive director is just extremely overwhelmed, doesn't understand the financial statements, but feels like they should. Well, not necessarily, you know, and I, I think that that's a great point. Uh, you know, why do you want to start this organization? This is what it takes to start the organization. And is it going to make sense to start it or is it going to make more sense maybe to partner with another organization that's already been established? You know? right. And, and that's just my and to your, to your example. Okay. If it's, you could be a person that's in the business of installing or selling blinds or your mission could be that you want to, you want to install blinds in Habitat for Humanity's houses. Right. Right. You're doing the same work. And so then you need to decide what are the funding sources that are going to get you to the finish line. Um, I think a lot, I think it, if people understood that a, a corporation is a corporation, you can elect for it to be nonprofit or you can elect for it to have some other designation, whether it's, because even under the nonprofit, we had a situation where an organization who was really an arts nonprofit had mistakenly filed under like a C4 or C6. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't eligible for any of the arts grants that only say C3. And, and they didn't discover that until years and years down the road. And so that says to me many things. Who's on your board looking at your documentation? Um, maybe this person walked into the leadership of an existing one like I did. I'm not an entrepreneur in the sense that I'm leading an organization that's almost 50 years old. And it was started by Junior League, in fact as a collective, seeing what a community need was in the city and forming a nonprofit corporation to be the agency for the city to help administer arts initiatives, right? So it wasn't necessarily an entrepreneurial track, but it was a collective community and you'll find that as well. And so then you have to decide, is it gonna be a lobbying group? Cause that has a different designation under the IRS code than what typically we think of as nonprofit, but and it will, bar you from some things, but entitle you to do other things. So we can't, even though we're an agency for our city, we can't lobby because yeah. we're a C3. But we do the C3 because most of the grant funding structures in this country um, fall under that designation for eligibility. So 
Yeah, I could talk about nonprofits forever because I feel like people don't understand. It seems romantic as a notion, and I think it's great um, structurally, but I think you have to understand fully, just like any business, what exactly you want to do. I think every or every nonprofit should have a business plan, period. Yes. You know, and then that helps you decide where you're going or how you're navigating the world financially. Okay, so you said yours wasn't entrepreneurial because of Arts Council, but it is entrepreneurial with the Mid City Dance Project. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So and entrepreneur. Mid City, oh, for sure. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, you can look at nonprofits in different ways. So Mid City was entrepreneurial in the sense of it really, we became a nonprofit because of the grant eligibility. Gotcha. You know, I probably still would have gone on Saturdays. I mean, you know, when I think about it now, it sounds so creepy, but back in the day, I literally would drive around these neighborhoods and see kids just loitering. And I'd say, hey, you want to be in a show? And they would look at me like, lady, you know, and I'd say, um, well, get in my car. We'll go to the center. And so they'd load up in my car. I had a Honda Civic. I think my record was like 11 in my car. It was so tiny. We were all squished. Take them to the center. Because once they saw, the, oh, every Saturday this is happening and, and I can walk, then they got it. But until then, there was no structure in place where they understood, oh, I see, this lady's going to actually show up every Saturday. You know, and they, we're going to do the same thing. And then we finally got to a performance. Oh, why, this is why we're doing all yeah. this. You know, then it all made sense. Um, but uh, I knew that I couldn't get any funding for it unless I was a nonprofit. I, did I do the business plan right? No. Did I structure my board right? No. Made a thousand mistakes. And I guess I stand today like I'm going to try to, I'm just going to try to mitigate that for other people. Like, you know, give them advice so that they don't have to make those same mistakes. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So, okay. So I, I feel like I could really keep talking about this Mid-City Dance Project, but we want to talk about Arts Council. Yes. And how long have you been with that organization? Six years. Six years. So just in general, you know, you spoke at Rotary and I thought you did a really good job of explaining like what is the mission of Arts Council and what goes into it? Because I think people are just kind of like, oh, it's arts. But really, what does that mean? Right. You know, um, so yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. You know, I find it fascinating to, you know, because technically, I guess I'll say that the Arts Council is the city's official arts agency. Okay. We're a separate nonprofit, but that's that's one of our designations. Another hat we wear is that we're a regional arts council for the state of Louisiana. So there's a Louisiana Division of the Arts, and that falls under the Lieutenant Governor's Office. And there are nine regions in the state. We serve 11 parishes in our particular region. And so we are arts leaders in that sense, too. Um, but what I found fascinating for this city and recently, the understanding is, I think, is broader is that what an arts agency can really do is not just say, oh, here's an arts market or a festival or we're going to have a gallery showing, but also that um, also that it can um, work with transportation and development on what is, what's aesthetically going to be beautiful about the University Lakes new bridge. We can work with consultants on the planning of that particular project. We can look at Renoir Cultural District, which is Melrose East area, and say, how can we infuse arts and culture into the area to spur economic development because arts are always the way nine times out of ten you're going to spur economic development it's going to be quality of place it's going to be beautiful 
It's going to, people want their businesses, you know, where there, where there are people and arts events draw those people there. So um, we're definitely involved in some of those city building and redevelopment projects. And that's a way that the Arts Council works. So then what happens is we turn around and we hire that sculptor or we hire that artist or we try to negotiate for those artists a studio space that's affordable so that you can start to spur that economic development. So that's that's some of the ways in which we work. Okay. I never really thought about that. Um, I think there's a lot of behind the scenes that goes on that people don't really realize. Okay. So, but you guys also have a few fundraisers. And we're just going to say pre-COVID. Yeah. Or especially during COVID. Yes. So Send your dollars too. No, I'm just yes, kidding. Yes, they still need help. So what are, what are some of those fundraisers? Just once we get back to life as normal, what, what are some of those fundraisers? So, so a couple fold. I mean, one that's exciting is, you know, we have been, and this has been, as soon as I got to the Arts Council, we began this conversation with, um, we began this conversation with um, where is our building? Like, how does our building and where we are, our home, how does it actually uh, serve our artists? serve our arts organizations and we were kind of upstairs in this fire station that in in the beginning the plan was that we would have the whole building but the firemen had a need to have an art museum and and it was just sort of we were squished in about four thousand square feet trying to serve 11 parishes you know and part of our charge is to provide affordable and accessible art space and and just the activity to you know to artists who, so they can develop stuff for the city and for the region. So, um, so we looked into renovating a new space, which I'm proud to say, I'm just going to cut to the chase because it's a long story. Um, we renovated the old district attorney's office on St. Ferdinand street. And now we have 12,000 plus square footage, uh, for artists, affordable, accessible. We have a sound recording studio. We have a kiln room. We have a gallery exhibition space, we have dance studio. I mean, it's it's just a lot of things that people have been really wanting for a long time. And um, so we're very excited and it's the Carrie Siraj Community Arts Center. And so one of our fundraisers is that it's called Impact Music Performance Arts Community and it's um, a big party. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we're very excited about the grand opening being in that format because Impact was a party that a few years, you know, that that party was had at the Shaw Center mm-hmm. and um, it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Everybody wears white. I went. So, it's you fun. know. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Super fun. And it's just a celebration, not too serious. Not, you know, like it's just super fun celebration of our people, our community and, and through an artistic lens. And so that's September 30th. Um, you know, every day we talk about COVID numbers. So we hope that it still will be September 30th. But in any event, it will be. And we're just super excited about it. Yeah, that event is always fun. This is really exciting, though, about, you know, the renovation and stuff like that. And so I think that, um, you know, our next crawl will be to some of these, visit some of these establishments because I'd love to take a tour of it. Please. It sounds really exciting. So, um, you know, I just think that when you said something like, you know, y'all help with some of the building or, you know, businesses, they want people around, but they also want it to be visually appealing, right? And there's just something so, like, I'm not, you know, I can walk through a museum, but I'm not an artist, right? 
I basically just go with like what what feeling does that painting or sculpture or even music I mean that's arts or performance or whatever it may be like what feeling does that give me and I think that it can be very very powerful um you know nonverbal expression mm-hmm. yeah how does that sound Maggie it sounds good and I love like you can walk into a place and just the way that it looks I mean that that just changes your mood. And so I think it's awesome that y'all are able to get a space that, you know, really helps y'all with your vision. And yeah, how long did that project take Renee? Oh man, it took, I mean, it really literally took five years, which is a fast track. Mm-hmm. A lot of times these projects take longer. I was thinking that was pretty, that's pretty fast. Yeah, it was pretty fast, but um, a lot of really good people and good forces came together to make that happen. Um, and, you know, we started out, we were in a firehouse, Mid-City Redevelopment Alliance was in a firehouse, and Scotland Bell High Alumni Center was in a Scotland house, uh, in a firehouse. And we all got together and wrote a grant. There you go for nonprofits. We wrote a grant so the three of us could explore the possibilities of recreating ourselves in a new space together. And it was really so great to have that our partners in that way. And that's how we got to the building we're in now. And they're, they're, they made different decisions about their firehouses, but we're still all in touch. And I really love that part of it. And then um, after that, it was just like a real push to just to get this done. Yeah, sometimes you just got to do it, right? You just got to make a decision and go for it. Um, Absolutely. Okay, so something else that you had put on the – oh, actually, it's really quick, though, back to Arts Council – where does the majority of your funding come from? Is it donations? Um, Grants? It is donations. So I like to model it after a 60-30-10 split. Okay. Where where our goals are that um, 60% will come from earned revenue. And so people sometimes say, nonprofit, what are you talking about with earned revenue? That could be tickets. Um, it could be consulting contracts. It can be uh, contracts with school systems um, so that we're providing services. In any, just like for-profit businesses, we're getting paid for those services that we provide. Um, and so we try to stay in, in sort of that realm. 30% is um, philanthropic, will be grants, will be major donors. Um, I would say in the earned revenue, our memberships kind of fall in there because we provide services for that. And that's where a lot of people can support us because... You can give $150 a year or you can divide it up by the month. Very nominal. And um, it really helps us pay for our operating expenses. Yes. And then Which you have, even as a nonprofit. We have, and you know what? You still have expenses. And you have to pay people to work there. <laughs> the greatest challenge for nonprofits, I would say, even on a national conversation, is that people never want to pay for general operating support. Right. They want to pay for a program. Yep. A camp, whatever. But, you know, people run those programs. Yeah. And they have payroll. So I always and I advise, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's still, it might be a nonprofit under the IRS code and you may be able to get grants and, you know, there's some intricacies, but at the end of the day, you're still operating. I mean, you look at your financial statements, yeah, there might be some differences, but like you still got an electricity bill to pay. Exactly. You still got to pay your employees. You know, there's people that make the organization what it is, just like there's people that make a for-profit business, you know? Yeah. And so, I, yeah, so yeah, sometimes people donate money and it goes to pay for operating expenses. It's just how it works, you know? I, I, I know, and you hear people say all the time, if it's more than 15% going to general operating, I'm not giving money to that organization. And I think I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think you need to say, what is, 
what's the impact of this organization and let them put the dollars where they need to put the dollars. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I've never actually thought that about any of the nonprofits that I've been made to. Yeah, I don't either, but um, you'd be amazed at the challenges we get where we're directed to not spend the money on general operating. And I just, I just implore anybody listening, like give your money because you believe in the mission and you know these people are doing the right thing. And then I would say in my little 60-30-10 model, 10% comes from municipal funds. So, you know, if we're getting uh, a small amount of money from the city to do our ebb and flow festival or, or different things like that, that, that's where that comes. But that's pretty minimal. We really try to keep it in, in our earned revenue and in our philanthropic uh, areas. Yeah. It sounds like people can learn a lot from you, though, Renee. You know, you know how to do this gig. All right, I've been doing it a long time. Yeah, and I think that's great there. And I think one thing too is just again, if somebody's young and they're looking to try to do this, you are just like if you start a business, you're going to make mistakes, and you will learn from those mistakes. And you're, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, and you're going to still make mistakes. I'm sure. You, I still make mistakes. I make the wrong judgment call. You know, it doesn't happen often. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know, it happens. Um, but you're going to need help. Like you, like you said, you had to like alliance with other people and like, let's write this grant. Let's get this started. You need a team Absolutely. to make it happen. Well, and I think that's the thing. Like I meet with young or, you know, I have scheduled today a, a, a Zoom call with somebody in California who heard that, you know, I sort of freely give advice like this and they're starting a nonprofit. Now, I don't know the laws of California, but I can generally like what we've talked about today can be maybe helpful. Mm -hmm. And I always want to keep the door open. So if anybody, you know, if you hear about a young person that wants, even if it's non-arts, but it's non-profit, I'm happy to answer any questions because I just feel like it'll just make the process so much easier. It does. It does. And, and just like anything, you got to have help and you got to have support and be willing to ask for those two things. Okay. So this is the, the one, the next thing that I want to talk about is that, you know, our, our question and we get a variety of answers when we ask this question is, is there any advice you would like to offer our listeners? And I love, love Renee's answer. I want to say everybody's going to know exactly why. Be proud of who you are and know that you deserve a place at the table. As women, we are a strong and vital voice, period. Mic drop. So <laughs> I get chills. You know, I, uh, I have actually, not to turn this back on myself, Renee, but one of the things that I've learned over the years, and especially just being in business and, you know, being an executive where most of the other executives are male, and again, this is not a female-male, you know, comparison, is that I am going to be unapologetic to who I am. I'm not going to apologize for who I am. I feel like I have an opinion and, you know, you can still be respectful and have that opinion. And that's what I really, really like about that, that we are a strong and vital voice and we do think, see things differently. They, you know, I think it, people just have to understand that we can all work together, you know? So is there any sort of experience that kind of made you think that, or are you just kind of talking in general, just being a female in business? I would say being a female, a 56 year old female, in business that has navigated through, you know, I was a child in the first women's movement um, and seeing me too. And then seeing, you know, like just seeing the evolution of women in the workforce has been extraordinary. And I feel like I'm in a, in a pretty curious time. Like when I graduated from law school, um, our class was 50% male, 50% female. And when I got out in the workforce, 
I don't know where the women went. But and, and I was I was largely in litigation, but I remember being in this rural courthouse. And this is 1992, this is not 1892, right? And I step up to the podium and I'm I'm representing a national corporate entity. And I go up to the podium and the judge says, Little girl, are you a lawyer? And I have to think about it because I said, you know, if I'm disrespect, if I say what I want to say right now, um, it will not be good for my client, you know, and what a just ridiculous thing to ask me. Like I was going to say, oh, I'm sorry. Is this a courthouse? I thought I was oh, shopping. Shoot. I just happened to land in the wrong place. Right. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that for me. So, so there was that. Okay. First experience. Ten years later. Um, I'm in a trial with a man. So how, wait, wait, how long were you an attorney? I'm still an attorney. Oh, you, so you used to practice yeah. law. Yeah, I practice law every day in this job. And that's another, that's a whole nother podcast is that when you practice law, it doesn't mean you're in the courtroom every day, right? And so I do contract work, negotiations. I, I, I keep my, my license active because I practice actively every day. Gotcha. Okay. We have law school interns that join us every semester and they're very necessary. Yeah. You know? Okay. So, um, but I was doing litigation work at the time. Ten years after that experience, I'm involved with the trial with my opposing counsel would only talk to a man. And I was the only litigator in our firm, also the only woman, only female uh, attorney. There were women in the office, but only female attorney. So I would have to be on speakerphone and talk, tell my boss what to say to him so he would speak. So wait, 10 years after 1992? 2002, 2002, correct. So in the real world, we have a long way to go. Yes. And so that's why I feel so strong. And even when I go to meetings now, I'm sort of in, at times, in a municipal role. Those things are changing, but there is definitely, there's definitely still a need to not qualify me as a woman when I walk in the door. Right. And, and I'm, I'm sure that people of color times a hundred of what I'm saying now, you know, but it is just amazing the expectation as a woman when you walk in the door. And so I'm trying to advocate for that, but that statement is why I feel really strongly about it. I'm, I'm very strong about it. I feel very strong about it as well. And, you know, I haven't, you know, truthfully, I, I haven't had uh, that many experiences where I've been, I felt like I've been belittled for lack of better words. I've had some, I have no problem standing my ground. And if, they think I'm rude, then I don't need to work with you. But I have had some instances where somebody ends up calling me. And I don't know if this is an assumption or they just don't know who I am. And normally it's one of our big national vendors, right? So they have no idea who I am. Uh, and they always want to talk to my supervisor. Yeah. They're like, we're going to need somebody of authority to sign off on this. I'm like, I am that person of authority. <laughs> Mic drop, you know? And so, okay, again, that's a very innocent comment. And I know they're not meaning anything by it, but I'm thinking, if I was a man, would you have said that to me? Probably not. If somebody would have said, call Joe, you would just call Joe and assume that he's the person with authority, but call Melissa, you know, and, and I, you know, but on the flip side though, we work with some vendors and local representatives here that, you know, the males do advocate on our behalf, Absolutely. you know, and I think that's very like, I mean, my husband's one of them. He's like, babe, you go, you go do your thing. You go, you know, you go do it. He's very supportive of that. And um, you know, I just, it's still kind of like, not everybody's of that mindset. No, it's a, it's, it's a process and we're just going to have to continue to remind, I want for one day or for the generation just even under me 
to not have gender be an issue. Yeah. Just walk in and say what you need to say and have your, you know, don't qualify it based on the fact that it's coming out of, you know, I identify as a female. It comes out of my mouth as a female. Just look at the work. Just hear what I'm saying and let's get over this other stuff. And so um, I don't think we're there at all, but it's just been amazing to watch. And with the whole hashtag Me Too movement and everything, it's been amazing. Like even speaking to my mother and those women in my family of her generation, she just couldn't believe these women were doing this. And, you know, even as a female thought what I was saying or my experience, I'm, I wasn't like rallying or anything, but, you know, like the experiences I'm telling you now, just as a woman in the profession, she just couldn't understand why I would have some of the reactions that I had, you know, because she comes from a different generation where it was accepted that women had a qualification as, as not the boss, mm -hmm. as someone else, and that you shouldn't be speaking out and saying those things. Um, it's not ladylike, which is Southern too, but, um, but uh, prim and proper is bullshit in my opinion when it comes to being at the boardroom. Now there's a bumper sticker. <laughs> Well, you know, whenever I left teaching and, and, and again, most of the things that I feel like come out of people's mouths, comments, questions, whatever they may be, I really do. I don't think people are intentionally trying to offend you. Right. I'm sure I've said something to someone before, but when I left teaching, I got this comment a lot that was like, well, what are you going to do when you have kids? And I was like, wait, what do you mean? What am I going to do if I have kids? First of all, I don't want kids, no matter what my profession is. I've got my nephews. But second, even if I did want kids, I have to be a teacher in order to have children. I mean, Renee, this was only like 12 years ago. That's, that's what I mean. On. Like, it's amazing. Like, right? uh, okay, well, I will hire a nanny. I don't know. I'll figure it out. You know, okay, chances are they never asked your husband that. Okay, so we're going to go back to were you at the uh, Influential Women in Business luncheon? No. Okay, so Paula Davis, we yeah. need to somehow get her on. She's a representative. Yeah, you know, she is. Yeah. So she made a comment like that. She was like, nobody ever asked my husband, you know, how are you going to do this with your family? Because why ask him? Right. He's married. What, you know, so I'm trying not to get rowdy about that. I don't know what she's going to tell me. That was the term tone deaf? Tone deaf? Yes. It's just like people don't realize, like, do you realize what you're saying? Yeah. yeah, and I, I don't actually think so. I just think that's just society and perception, you know, and the whole thing, you know, when I decided not, when my husband and I decided, you know, not to have children, it's like, whoa, once you start going to get societal norms, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, it freaks people out. Like, they're just like, that is just, you know, and some are really like, I, to, now people are like, especially the ones that have kids that are in, you know, school and they're driving them all over the place. They're like, I don't know, Melissa, I think you might've made the right decision. I mean, they're kidding. <laughs> they love their kids, but you know, it's, it is still, um, we're just, we're, especially in our field too, we work with a, it's a male dominated with the advisors and some of the vendors that we work with, you know, but I think that I've probably made a name and you probably made a name for yourself too, in terms of, for lack of better words, like don't mess with Melissa. <laughs> she will tell you what she thinks. <laughs> We might be able to pull the partners here and see yeah. if that's how they feel too, probably. So I'm a big advocate for that, you know, and I really do. Uh, I enjoy having conversations with our team here, you know, in terms of, in, in terms of females and leadership. So I appreciate that comment, Renee. Sure. Okay. So now we're going to talk about your shout outs. Shout outs. Yes. So um, you have a lot, <laughs> which is awesome. So I'm just going to read them. Okay. So we've got Mary Joseph. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if I know who that is. An attorney, a, a legendary figure in Baton Rouge. Okay. Amazing, amazing woman. Um, so she was, when I first graduated from law school, she was one of the few female practicing lawyers. She pioneered, you know, first in a lot of respects. Um, she still works at McGlinchey. Okay. And, um, but she is an advocate for the arts and has for decades supported the arts. So you don't necessarily have to be an artist or an arts organization. You can be a supporter and know that it helps. And in meaningful, meaningful ways, she's always been bold. It's exactly, it's a great segue of what we've been talking about. She's always been bold. She's extremely talented and intelligent. And um, she just, you know, is very direct. And I just, I love everything about her. And she's still involved and was really intricately involved in this new building. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Donna Siraj. I would I mean, say the same. Yeah. I would I mean, say exactly the same. I mean, really strong women when, at a time when we have a lot more voice than they have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and they navigated it with strength and just boldness. I love them. And grace. And grace. Grace. Which is different than being prim and proper. I just want to clarify that in my <laughs> statement. Go back to my statement, which, yeah. Now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, that was, that was kind of funny. Go me. All right. Rose Hudson. Rose, so Rose and I went to middle school and high school together. So I knew, I knew Rose as a classmate. Um, and I mean, Rose would be much more proper than I'm going to say it now, but there's a whole group of us that went to Redemptress. And so we all call ourselves the NOC, Snorkel Choctaw, which had, has a great charm. I'm super proud that I was part of that group because we were maybe barred from some of the social things here in the city. It's a very divided. You go north of Florida Boulevard or north of Choctaw Wars, um, you're going to have sort of stigma attached to you um, for some of the things that happen in the city. Um, that's been breaking down every year, but but it creates sort of a camaraderie and, a, and you know, this, this real family kind of thing. So Rose is part of the family, but Rose is an amazing figure on the international level. I, I mean, talk about it an influential person in business. You don't have to qualify her as a woman. She, I mean, she is that, but, but hands down, one of the great leaders of this city. So I always look to her wisdom. She's calm, you know, where I'm going to just spout off, you know, Rose lets me take a breath. <laughs> That's good. Cause I'm, I would not classify myself as calm by any stretch of the imagination. All right. Dr. Catrice Albert. So Catrice Albert and I met each other in leadership Baton Rouge, a program through the Baton Rouge Area Chamber. I was in that class in 2016. So great. I was in 2005. Um, and she's just a force. You know, um, she now has her own consulting firm, but in the DEI space, she's amazing. I highly recommend her for you guys if you're looking for somewhat a consultant in that realm. But um, but she lives that truth. Um, she was at LSU in the Office of Culture uh, and Diver- I don't know what the full title is, but Culture and Diversity. Um, back in the day and the way I just saw her in I learned from her every day because the way I saw her interact with people and accept people at wherever they were whoever they were and make them feel so welcome I mean she is such a model and she ended up um, working for the NCAA and heading their national um, diversity and equity and inclusion um, I guess department or, or the area of that organization but she's been well-respected and well-sought-off nationally. She's from New Roads, you know, and so I want to always celebrate those women that are on this international yeah. playing field that come from 
our area because I feel like we produce awesome people and we should celebrate them right here rather than having them go seek out, you know, the accolades and the well-deserved accolades that other people appreciate. We need to appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay. Winifred Riley. So Winifred Riley is not only an amazing artist of note, but also a huge art supporter. And she and her husband, Kevin, if you look around the city and see what's beautiful, you could probably type to Winifred and Kevin. And they're quiet philanthropists. They don't need their names over all over everything, but they deserve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would put it everywhere. Um, but they're super smart about, it's not just the arts, but they're super smart about where they, you know, where they put their support and they're engaged in that. So it's not just like, I'm going to support this because you asked me, but it's, what are you doing? How are you moving forward? What's, what's your plan? And, and for me, that's so helpful because when philanthropists do that, it makes you think through your planning, Mm -hmm. just like any business plan. And um, I'm just always inspired by the thoughtful way that she looks at the world. Okay. And Connolly. Same breath. Feel like they're they're good friends. Yeah. And so when I thought about Winifred, I thought about Anne. Such a great businesswoman. That's somebody who's made a phenomenal like she's a game changer in the art gallery, visual art world across the whole southern United States. And um, she's very humble and quiet in the way that she does it. But she's somebody who didn't decide to be a nonprofit. Right? She's for profit mm-hmm. and is and that's a great example of you know, the way that you can use art as a business and be successful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Christy Reeves. Christy Reeves is the head of Oshner uh, Foundation. Okay, I knew that name sounded familiar. We met in leadership okay. as well, and she's been an advocate for arts. And not, she's, a, she's a playwright um, and a creative writer, but her day job, as it were, is um, in foundation leadership. She's phenomenal. She's done it on the national level. And again, another person, another woman that I think we're so lucky to have in this area that these she's appreciated on the national level, but I'm not sure fully appreciated here. Yeah. I mean, Melissa Thompson, when I had her on, she basically said, we are we have a bunch of badass women locally. We sure do. I don't think you said that right, Melissa. <laughs> we All sure right. Do. And then your current board chair, which is Monique Scott Spalding, who I'm uh, I know Monique. She, I'm pretty sure she was the co-chair when I did Dancing for a Big Buddy. I feel sure. And that same year, I think she had also gotten the award, uh, volunteer award. I, I, I'm downplaying that. It was much bigger than that. And I was just like, I mean, Monique. First of all, let me. This is how I. This is when I look at Monique. This is how what I think. Oh my God, she does so much stuff, and she looks so put together and calm. <laughs> Literally, like poised, not. Poise and just always put together, never looks overwhelmed to me, but she is involved in a lot. And, and she's she's just a great person to talk to. I didn't get to know her that well through Big Buddy, but I did get to know her. And then I like after I knew her, I was like, Holly everywhere I look, she, you know, she's everywhere. So um she's really an amazing, amazing person and made a, made a commitment. She had a very successful business that she sold and, and she made a commitment to actually devote all of her time that she would have devoted to her business to strengthening nonprofits in our city. That's, that's it. And so meaningful dialogue, deep research, concern. I mean, she is the real deal. And I know how much time she gives to our organization 
but that's times 10 because she's with this many nonprofits yes. and in leadership, and it's just incredible. I mean, this city is better because my name's in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really, sure. yeah. she, she has done a lot. Okay. All right. So, uh, in the sake of time, since Renee had to sit here for 25 minutes because we had technical issues, uh, so just a few other things. Looks like you love Italian food. Love it. Well, I love food. Let's start yeah. there. <laughs> I feel like if you live in Baton Rouge or just in Louisiana, you just inherently love food. Yeah. But really love Italian food. Love also my Cajun roots. I, I love that a lot of the, you know, sort of recipes that we we really sort of appropriated in the Cajun world, but they're they're Native American. They have their Native American roots. I love learning about that. And then I love cooking it and eating it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you said your favorite family trip was in Tuscany. Yeah, so we're big travelers. Okay. We love to travel. So that was a hard question for me. I was like, I don't know, every trip's my favorite. Yeah. But this one time we actually rented a house and um, I have two stepdaughters and so they're significant others. We just went and hung out. We were close to lots of places that we could travel to and see, you know, the Leaning Tower Pisa or whatever. But um the best part of that was like the sunsets, cooking, drinking great wine, and having family. And it was just great uh, in a stunningly beautiful absolutely. setting. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you said the most exotic, exotic and fascinating vacation was India and Iceland. Iceland for the geological and just natural world. You know, like there's no, you have to do it. You have to see it. It's an extraordinary place, an extraordinary place. Um, I was there for a dance gig I was teaching, but it was in March. So there was very little, you know, it's four hours or so a day, you know, at that point. But the northern lights, the the just exotic, otherworldly, it looked like the moon at times, the skies there. She could stop on the side of the road and in and, and what we would think of like a lake would be like a hot tub because of this activity oh, wow. on the island. Beautiful. Frozen, a frozen waterfall the size of Niagara Falls. Completely frozen. Like just these stunning, stunning views. India, I went to go teach at the Ballet Festival of India. The story I told you about Mid-City Dance Project, one of those students now lives in Mumbai and started ballet there. And that's a Western art form that they're less familiar with. So she wanted to have a ballet festival so that they could learn and see what this is like. And so she put this festival together. But I went to Delhi, Agra, or Salva, Taj Mahal, which is unbelievable. Um, but then this course was in Mumbai. Also unbelievable for the amount of people that are there. Just you've never seen just people. <laughs> just so many people. That's the way I can describe it. Morning, noon, and night. You can't drive quickly because there's just people walking and it's just it's just so 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 populated um on so many levels it's terrifying crazy exotic beautiful it's all those things together and um while it was an extraordinary experience um i would go and do it all over again speaking of women at the first night i'm traveling by myself so the first night i was there i was in this hotel that had a lot of europeans in it and i sat with these two women and they said, we're going to teach you the street smarts of India, because if you're a woman traveling here by yourself, there's some things you need to. And one of them was, look, when you go to these hotels, they ask for your passport, because there's also bomb threats all the time. You need to go through all the security. And 
they have to they have to like register you with the local police. Um, they said they can't tell white men and women. Like they can't tell the difference. You all look alike. And I was like, oh, that's so racist. I can't believe you're telling me that. And then sure enough, I was checking out of a hotel and they had the pictures of everybody. I was the only female in the hotel, by the way, because women don't travel by themselves, but there were some European men in the, and they had us all lined up and they're like, I don't know where you are. And I'm like, I'm this one. I'm oh, this passport. Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh, those women were right. And um, it was just an interesting. How? It's We're so used to being the dominant group in a population because, you know, all of us are white. Mm-hmm. We're so used to that. But when you go into a Guess world where you're not, it's so interesting how they perceive you. And they just were like, I don't know. Who are you? And I was like, look at all these men with beards. And it's like, <laughs> okay. They couldn't discern that? No, they we looked completely. They were just like, I'm confused. And I was like, okay, I'm this one. How did you get connected with those ladies? You just introduce yourself? We, you sit at a breakfast and they sat you where it was like, you know, too many people and all stuff. So they just put a bunch of random people at a table together. And there was a woman from Ireland there and another woman from Canada. And obviously we look how we look, right? We look very different than everybody else sitting around. And so mm-hmm. they were like, okay, why are you here? Yeah. yeah. They were from tech businesses. And so they were kind of used to it and had been living in hotels and, they were, and they're like, oh, new kid. Yeah. Well, we're... All right. So cool. uh, before we wrap up, what's the best way to get information about Arts Council? Is it going to the website? I would say, you know, you can follow us on Instagram or, you know, at Arts Council GBR, both on Facebook and Instagram. Um, certainly our website, which is artsbr.org. Um, and, you know, check us out. You can also call us. Um, our number is 225-344-8558. Um, and you can just listen to the directory. You can talk to me. I'm at extension 224 or, you know, um, certainly we can also, the, the website has our email information as well. Okay. That's great. Can people donate through the website as well? Like an yes. Donation? And please do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Early and often, right? Like voting. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So we always wrap up with five quick questions. Okay. So these are either or questions. So would you prefer dance or theater? Dance. Okay. Summer or winter? Summer. Sun or moon? Sun. Sweet or salty? Salty. Martini or margarita? Martini. <laughs> Those are so easy. I'm sure that psychologically puts me in some category. Of oh, well, we don't go that deep. We don't go that deep. You actually were very You just makes me martini? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm a big martini fan. So. In the daytime, not the nighttime. Yeah. So, uh, no, some people, some guests are like, oh, ooh, I don't know. I don't know which one we want to share. Sure. So, anyway. All right. So, we're going to wrap up really quick with some things that make us happy. Things that make us happy. Yeah, I'd like to report to everyone, if you're concerned about my insomnia, I slept for 10 hours on Friday night. Snaps. Now, I might have been a little sleep deprived from Thursday night, but uh, normally, even if I'm sleep deprived, I cannot sleep. Like, I could not get up on Saturday morning. It was a great feeling. And I have these blackout curtains. That's life changing. Okay. Uh, And then, Maggie? What? Well, I. I get really excited around this time of year because I get to see all the back to school pictures that people posted and like it's to watch all all my friends and family kids grow up. So I was like, that's something that makes me happy. 
Um, but I also tried the spreadsheet. Al Frenchie. Mm-hmm. Pretty legit. Mm-hmm. Just sucked up all. Who was right? Who was sucked right? up all the water in uh-huh. my hair. Dally Maggie. We had Dally Maggie. Didn't believe this house crunchy would work. They're pretty awesome. But so. also, just talking to Renee, I loved hearing about how, well, I love how I never would have thought you were able to use your attorney. You know, you, you think yeah. attorney, like this is, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to law school and then you're going to practice at this law firm. And then I just love hearing that you made a place that you could connect your passion and, and your studies together and and then you're doing it for other people too. That makes me happy. So when Renee said that, I was going to say, I teach every day. I'm still teaching. Didn't realize it when I went into this, but I'm teaching every single day. Cause that's a lot of what we do. So it's really Absolutely. great when you can tie those two things together. So I, I can relate with that. But um, anyway, Renee, thank you so much for your time today. That was super interesting. I learned something. Maggie, oh, I learned a lot. Did not know it was so intense to be a ballerina and that you there was all these tears. <laughs> yeah, you are like, okay. So um, I think well, that's going to wrap us up. And we uh, look forward to our guests next week. And we will talk to everyone later. Hope you all have a great week. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye.